This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics by John Nichols. Seventy-five years ago, Henry Wallace, then the Vice President of the United States, mounted a campaign about the danger of American fascism. As fighting in the European and Japanese theaters drew to a close, Wallace warned that the country might win the war and lose the peace, that the fascist threat the United States was battling abroad had a terrifying domestic variant, growing rapidly in power. Wealthy corporatists and their allies in the media. Wallace's political vision, as well as his nomination to remain vice president, was sidelined by Democratic big city bosses and Southern segregationists. In the decades to come, other progressives would mount similar campaigns. As John Nichols chronicles in this book, they ultimately failed. But their efforts provide us with insights into the nature of the Democratic Party and strategic lessons for the likes of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics, by John Nichols. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm interminably broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What is going on with capitalism? Are we on the verge of a fourth industrial revolution that will prompt robots and machines to wipe out human labor? If so, is Universal Basic Income, or UBI, the tool to ensure that this becomes a dream instead of a nightmare? Given the huge divides in our politics, what does it mean that so many people of so many different ideological persuasions agree, in rough terms, on both the problem and its solution? My guest today is Aaron Beninov. He argues in two recent lengthy pieces in the New Left Review that automation theorists have misdiagnosed capitalism's malaise. Automation isn't destroying capitalist demand for labor, he argues. Instead, the problem is that capitalist growth is finding its limits. Manufacturing powered a unique engine for global growth. Today, it suffers from falling output growth because there is too much manufacturing capacity for too little demand. And the service jobs that make up a growing portion of global labor cannot do what industry once did. Indeed, the fundamental problem, at least before the coronavirus crisis, wasn't unemployment at all. It's underemployment. Before coronavirus hit, there wasn't a lack of jobs, there was a lack of good jobs. Jobs have been increasingly flexibilized, part-time, informal, and their very status as conventional jobs disavowed by subcontracting. Capitalism, in other words, has already worked out a solution to the problem, and we have been living it. 
It's a really fascinating interview, and it is so packed that there's something really critical that I somehow didn't ask. And that is, given Beninov's critique of UBI, what does he make of its utilization now and the left mobilization for its expansion as a COVID times emergency measure? I reached out to ask, and he said this, quote, Of course it makes sense for people to demand money now. The state needs to step in and replace cash flows that have been halted due to the unfolding public health crisis. Even better would be to mandate the cancellation of rents and other bills coming due for working-class households. In Europe, states are directly paying between 70 and 80 percent of the wage of workers who have been furloughed. It would be even better if such payments were extended more universally throughout the population. That would be a step towards a more human economy. What is questionable is whether economies, ravaged by the coronavirus crisis, are going to see restored rates of investment once the initial shock is over. Paying people to keep them alive is necessary, but will not get us out of the resulting, lasting economic malaise. The weakness of the economy going into the recession suggests that there is going to be a long and rocky road ahead. If capital is unwilling to invest, and states are unwilling or unable to force private investment or replace it with public investment, we need to build a case for a different world, one in which people not only receive means of survival, but wrest democratic control over investment and production. It should be more clear than ever that we cannot allow ourselves to be bought off by capital while allowing a tiny minority of ultra-wealthy asset holders to continue to control the reins of the economy. UBI may be a good first step, but we need to set our sights higher if we are going to get out of this mess. Before we get rolling, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you no doubt already know that we depend on listener support to make it happen. And the place that listeners support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. We are putting the money that you contribute to very good use, putting together a limited edition COVID series, which is going to be very, very good. And we are also organizing listener-run book groups. You can find out more about both at thedigradio.com. But my purpose right now in mentioning those two things is to highlight that those two things cost money, which is where you come in. If you have a stable source of income and you can afford it, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We also have a left-wing book or books to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. Thanks. And here's Aaron Beninov, a professor in the social sciences division at the University of Chicago and a member of the EndNotes editorial collective. His first book, Automation and the Future of Work, is forthcoming from Verso in late 2020. I will link to his two New Left Review articles that we're discussing, Automation and the Future of Work, Parts 1 and 2, in the show notes. Aaron Beninov, welcome to The Dig. Great. Thanks for having me. Andrew Yang is a really interesting figure, and he's been written about plenty. But what I don't think has been paid enough attention to is exactly why his warning that machine labor 
will displace human labor in a fourth industrial revolution and that universal basic income, or UBI, that that's the only solution. Why that struck such a chord. On the one hand, he had this maybe unprecedented national platform to spread automation discourse. But I think at least as importantly, that Yang's popularity reflected the fact that the belief that our labor will be replaced by robots was already pretty widespread, which raises the question of why so many people were already so receptive to his message, including people, I imagine, who've never read a book or an article arguing that technological unemployment is going to happen. So to start things off, what do automation theorists argue is happening to capitalism? And why do so many people so intuitively, so immediately believe that to be true? Yeah, it's it's I, I find it completely fascinating um, as someone who grew up reading science fiction and watching science fiction shows like Star Trek to live through a period of time where this idea of um, the automation of work is just becoming so widespread in the population. And I think that the explanation for that is just that, um, well, first of all, I think that it's important to recognize that it's one among a number of competing explanations for the phenomenon. I think there are other options available to people, but I think that the automation one strikes people so strongly because it presents a positive account of our future and of human possibility and capability. So among the available options, you know, think, for example, of a kind of um, neo-Malthusian account that says that the real problem is just that there's so many people in the world and there's no possibility of feeding, housing, or employing all of them. Unlike that kind of discourse, which is very pessimistic, the automation discourse has a kind of positive, utopian, even Promethean account of human possibilities. And it seems to contain within it a very um, digestible notion of what we would have to do to uh, overcome this problem. I also think it's very kind of interesting to me, the rise of Yang in particular, because I read his book before he announced that he was running for president. <laughs> And uh, I think I'm, I might still be one of a sort of small group of people who's actually read um, his book, which has the funny title, The War on Normal People. And huh. um, it's really an account of how people like Yang, who grew up in a meritocratic environment where although they are themselves elites and come from elite families, they understand themselves as part of a um, general story of meritocratic advance, advancing on their own laurels and so on. Yeah. So it, the, the normal people are all the people who didn't go to elite colleges and just pointing out how badly they've fallen behind over time. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting book. You write that while automation discourse is not the accurate diagnosis of a crisis in capitalism, that it is very much an expression or reflection of that crisis. And that that, that crisis, that what you called the phenomenon earlier, that that crisis is that there are fewer and fewer good jobs and people understandably want to know why. Yeah, that's completely correct. I mean, specifically in the United States, but also as a much wider global phenomenon, it's obvious that uh, there are simply too few jobs for too many people, right? Um, people experience this as um, insecurity in work. They experience it as a difficulty, especially for people coming out of school or aging into the labor market of finding a job. 
and uh, in a kind of broader macroeconomic sense, as many of the automation theorists point out, we've seen decades of stagnant wages, so-called jobless um, recoveries, falling labor shares of income, uh, rising economic inequality, and all of these phenomena kind of um, are just speak to the real experience in people's lives that um, it's just become very hard to get a job. And what that means is that workers are really at a disadvantage facing employers in asking for all kinds of necessary things that they need to do their work and to survive wages, working conditions, and so on. You write that, quote, automation discourse rests upon four main propositions. And I want to attempt to structure this interview by addressing your critique of those propositions one by one, though I do anticipate that that structure may fail at some point, but that's my (laughs) intention. And the first proposition is this, that increasingly advanced machines are displacing workers, which in turn leads to growing technological unemployment. So let's start by unpacking that first into two parts. First, what do automation theorists believe is happening to robotics and machines? And then second, why do they believe that this technological change is leading to growing technological unemployment? I mean, I think that something really important about the way that the automation theory works is that it 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 can it can sort of tell the reader or tell the viewer or the audience, hey, just look around you, look at all of this incredible technology and how much it's transformed our lives. Um, and you can point to smartphones and you can point to um, the internet and social media and a whole bunch of things that have changed our lives. Podcasts. Consumers. <laughs> yeah. And then also as producers to some extent, right? Especially for people in um, gig work. I mean, I, I personally have had the experience, um, I don't know how this has been for you, that sometimes, you know, if you've, if you've worked in an office, it's sometimes really impressive in a negative way how bad the technology is. Yeah. Like, I've always had the experience that the computers at jobs I've had when I worked, like, as a tutor or in different office jobs, I was always impressed by how poor the technology was in the workplace. But, you know, I guess, I guess that somehow the, the automation account points us to pretty massive changes in technology. Part of the problem is, I think, that what they actually can point to, and this is true of a lot of the books, they sort of begin in manufacturing. They say, look at these um, factories, you know, which most of the readers obviously have never um, been in a factory. But think about these factories that must exist where um, processes are becoming largely or even fully automated. Uh, and that example of really ongoing deindustrialization, which is something that they try to explain through uh, technological change, and I offer a different explanation for that phenomenon. But um, they say, look at the disappearance of all of these uh, manufacturing jobs. This must be due to technology. And now we can already imagine that this is beginning to happen or kind of see some indications of it happening in the world around us. I always look for examples from services of the kinds of things that they are thinking of, because they're really, it seems to me like there aren't that many examples, but I think that frequently- like people that, at McDonald's, like, like people yeah. working, the cashier, cashiers at McDonald's. Yeah, cashiers at McDonald's, and in general, the idea of kind of like um, uh, automated checkout counters, where of course people are still working, but there's sort of fewer workers anyway, sort of manning or overseeing that process. 
And then uh, travel agents are another really frequent example. Because you use kayak instead of a calling yeah. up a travel agent. So you point at these kinds of things and you point at all the technology in our lives and you say, look, this is already happening. This is the explanation. You can point to real labor-saving technologies and say, look at all the jobs that are disappearing. Look at how much trouble you're having work. And looking at this amazing technology, these two things are related. And, you know, there is a reality that technological progress and productivity growth are a contributing factor to job loss. So that's the kind of uh, part of the story in a way that's more visible. And then my account is trying to show how that is actually a secondary cause within a much broader phenomenon which is overproduction and slowing economic growth, economic stagnation. In terms of the the, the McDonald's example, I don't know, I don't recall if you mentioned this in your articles, but some sort of business interests pushing against a $15 minimum wage argued that maybe in maybe in Seattle, maybe somewhere else, I don't recall, argued that that, that the bill was essentially a robot employment act. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do. I do talk about how um, in San Francisco, these billboards went up that said, if, if you fight for a $15 minimum wage, we're just going to replace all of these workers. You know, it, it's funny because often they I mean, in, in the Wall Street Journal, they talk about Flippy, the burger flipping robot, which I, I don't know if that's been in use in any kind of major fast food operation. But obviously, um, the, the the problem with this claim is that in many countries in the world, fast food companies do use touchscreens, and now they're using them increasingly also in like airports and in a few maybe locations around the United States. But in other countries, uh, especially in Europe, you know, fast food workers are often better paid than in the U.S. So there is, of course, some kind of trade off there. But um, we could live in an environment with touchscreens and have much better paid workers uh, as they do in other countries. And you also write that someone did try to start a fully automated fast food place and it failed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious that you still need workers to do a lot of the actual work involved in uh, restaurants and stuff like that. Automation theorist's second proposition is that, quote, we are on the verge of achieving a largely automated society in which nearly all work will be performed by self-moving machines and intelligent computers. How, in their vision, would would full automation be achieved? What's the mechanism taking us from here to there? It's a beautiful image in a lot of ways, right? I mean, it, it's kind of alternately a dream and a nightmare to kind of imagine a science fiction world where um, it's really the case that all of these things that you want could come at the touch of a button. Uh, how exactly you get them in that world, I think that there's a number of different stories about that, right? One is advanced robotics. So it's a kind of move from industrial robotics into service sector robotics, whether that's in the form of machines, the, the flippy, the machine flipping burger, or robots like cutting your hair. Often, at least in my kind of brief forays into this world, you see robots playing ping pong and stuff like that. I'm not exactly sure how that translates into um, a kind of marketable <laughs> skill. There's, of course, sex robots. That's a frequent topic. Um, again, you know, in a big part of the gray economy, obviously, I'm not sure um, how successful that would be as an industry. But yeah, in any case, there's a story on the one hand about industrial robotics becoming service robotics. Then, of course, there's a second story 
about machine learning, which is actually a very specific uh, technical strategy for solving problems and um, getting computers to be able to do tasks for which it's very difficult for human beings to describe a specific rule for those machines to follow. And then the third thing, which if you read the most recent kind of um, automation accounts by like Daniel Susskind, they kind of pull back from a lot of their claims and they kind of rely on the, you know, the kind of holy grail, which is general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence. And that idea, of course, is that machines just become um, so smart and so capable of learning that they surpass human intelligence and then they end up solving all the problems for us. Well, this brings us to the the, the core of of your critique now that we've laid out sort of the first two premises of the automation theorists, which is your critique is that automation theorists miss a critical relationship between automation and employment, that there is a relationship, but that it's being widely mis- misunderstood. And you write that that what's really going on is that it's the level of output growth that is key in determining whether automation indeed leads to technological unemployment. So the key variable here, you write, is not technological change. It's sluggish output growth. And it's that sluggish output growth, which in turn leads to falling demand for labor. You write that unemployment, quote, is taking place as the automation theorists expect, but not for the reasons they offer. This idea of automation is is familiar immediately to anyone who's listening, but slow output growth is probably not. What is output? What is output growth? Why is it falling? And why do automation theorists mistakenly believe that increased productivity by way of technological change is the actual culprit? So I, I often find this a little bit difficult um, to explain without having like a visual component to the explanation, but I'll try my best. In essence, when I talk about output growth, I'm really just talking about the growth of a sector of the economy. So in the uh, language of economic accounting, I'm just talking about value added. That's the kind of technical economic term. And I'm talking specifically about real value added. So like accounting for inflation, the change in the cost of money. But you, all of your listeners will know the concept of value added because value added for the economy as a whole is just called GDP. So when I talk about slowing growth of output in, for example, manufacturing or in the total economy, I'm really just talking about changes in the growth of GDP, as it were, in one industry or in the economy as a whole. And the idea that we've lived in an era of slowing economic growth is something that a number of authors have said. So uh, my own advisor, uh, when I was a graduate student, um, professor of uh, economic history at UCLA, Robert Brenner, he made this argument uh, starting in the late 90s in a book called uh, The Economics of Global Turbulence, and then a number of other books uh, after that. And then more recently, there's been a big debate and a kind of interest within the mainstream economics profession because Larry Summers um, put forward this argument of secular stagnation, which is a kind of Keynesian way of expressing a similar problem, although explaining it a little bit differently. There's and then, also Japanification. Yeah, and Japanification is another way of talking about it that's sort of more common in the financial press, like the Financial Times. 
But all of those kind of ideas, the long downturn, secular stagnation, economic maturity, they all are different ways of talking about this phenomenon that across large parts of the world, and in fact, for the world economy as a whole, there's been a really significant slowdown in the rate of economic growth. And so what I show in my work is that people who talk about productivity rising quickly, they miss something really surprising, you know, and, and actually a lot of the automation theorists do talk about this as a kind of afterthought, a kind of problematic feature of the macroeconomic reality that's difficult for them to explain. But productivity is just not growing very quickly. It's not growing very quickly in manufacturing. It's not growing very quickly across the economy. But so, it can appear to grow quickly by comparison to output growth. Yeah. So it's only... And that's the misunderstanding. Exactly. So if you compare productivity growth today to productivity growth 30 years ago, it's actually quite slow. But if you compare productivity growth today to output growth, or for the economy as a whole, we would say to GDP growth, right? Um, GDP growth is growing much more slowly. So relative to that, productivity appears to be growing quickly. So um, in- and just to pause you, productivity is- Yeah, productivity is output or value added per hour or per worker, depending on the metric you're using. It's sort of like the efficiency of the use of labor. Uh, and over the long term, the reason why we've become so much richer, both in this country and in the world, is because of productivity growth. It's the fact that each worker in working a, a standard working day produces more, right, in that time than they would have in the past. So there's been this long-term tendency for labor productivity to grow. But that process is actually happening more quickly, uh, sorry, more slowly. Labor productivity now is growing more slowly than it did in the past which contradicts the kind of automation theory. Because the automation theory would be that productivity growth is exploding to the extent that production is becoming so efficient that it won't need labor at all. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and again, it's a little hard to describe in words compared to visually, but um, in essence, you can imagine jobs disappearing for two completely contrasted reasons. On the one hand, jobs could be disappearing because where uh, the economy is growing at the same rate every year, but more and more of that growth is taken care of by productivity growth. So more and more output growth comes from uh, productivity growth, so much so that we're producing more and more while shedding workers, right? That's kind of the automation story. Like productivity is growing more and more quickly that we can produce everything we you know, need and then some using fewer and fewer workers. In reality, another, another possibility is that productivity growth isn't really changing, but the rate of growth of the economy is slowing down. So um, we are producing more using fewer workers, but it's actually because the rate of the expansion of the economy is slowing down rather than the rate of productivity growth speeding up. One thing that's remarkable is not only is what's happening not what the automation theorists say is happening, but what they say is happening now really happened in much more significant ways in the past because technological change has been a constant throughout the history of capitalism and has in the past radically decreased the amount of labor required for certain types of production and destroyed many sorts of jobs entirely. And maybe the most powerful example that you cite are the breakthroughs in agricultural productivity and the green revolution that took place in the mid-20th century, which led to these just massive 
declines in the proportion of agricultural workers worldwide. And that's a process that continues to through this day. You write, quote, the major global job destroyer in the 20th century was not silicon capitalism, but nitrogen capitalism. Explain this broader history and the case of agriculture in particular, and how strong growth in other periods offset the jobs lost when, when, there, was, when there were new jobs being created to replace them. So, yeah, I mean, the example of agriculture is really key also because in agriculture, uh, what's very interesting is that output tends not to grow very quickly. So in agriculture, as um, productivity growth increased, you really just saw a massive loss of um, positions, we might say, within agriculture. So, I mean, just the, the longer term history here is that agriculture was one of the first aspects of economic life alongside food processing and textiles to be transformed by new capitalist methods of production in early modern England. Thinking about uh, like enclosure here. Yeah, enclosure and crop rotation and new ways of kind of integrating animal husbandry and the growing of crops. And that process, yeah, of enclosure and of growing productivity in agriculture uh, had a huge effect. So London became the largest city in the world because of this massive increase in agricultural productivity, which meant that with many fewer people, with fewer people on the land, you could support much larger urban populations. And agricultural revolutions have always been critical to um, the transformation of capitalism for centuries. The difference in the 20th century was that um, up until the 20th century, it was actually very difficult to increase agricultural productivity past a certain point because actually much like a lot of services today, the work is just too irregular. Uh, it's occurring in fields. It depends on these kind of natural temporalities of the season and of soil. Uh, in the 20th century, these massive changes in agricultural production particularly through the Haber-Bosch process and the capacity to produce synthetic forms of fertilizer, as well as the motorization and mechanization of farming implements, uh, resulted in a massive increase in agricultural uh, land and labor productivity levels. And it just resulted in this massive sloughing off of agricultural employment. It's a funny point because uh, Adam Tews actually provided a little correction to my line there that you quoted about silicon capitalism and nitrogen capitalism because he pointed out that many of the people who lost their livelihoods in agriculture they didn't exactly have jobs right they were peasants um, right and the transformations of the world that took place in the course of the 20th century many of them of course um in uh, involving a lot of state violence right uh, especially in the soviet union and other places that uh that process actually forced people often to get jobs for the first time in their lives to seek out a different kind of employment relation than the one they'd had previously. But the sum total effect of that was to increase the number of people globally who needed to work in order to survive. And that's something that's really different about the period that we live in all around the world. Um, so many people need to find work. They're so dependent on markets in order to live. They have to earn some kind of wage income or labor income uh, in order to live. And that's made this kind of reality that um, there's so few jobs for so many people has a much greater effect globally because so many people now have been proletarianized. Uh, whereas in the past, many more people 
Of course, they were very poor and often food insecure, and it remains the case that many people who depend on agricultural to, to live today are food insecure. But the, there's been a really huge structural change there, right, in the sense that so many more people uh, have to find work on the market in order to live. What about other moments of, of massive technological change that led to the elimination of certain types of work or like or at least a significant decrease in the demand for for labor for particular types of work that did not lead to growing unemployment because there was strong output growth overall yeah so i think that the you know it's it, there's a certain kind of i feel like in these conversations people often talk about the luddite fallacy which is the fact that in the past there's been massive uh, technological change that's destroyed a lot of jobs, but there's always been jobs to replace them. And so my story is a certain kind of intervention into that debate to point out that new jobs are really not being created in such great volumes to replace the ones being lost, just because of this process of slowing down economies and stagnating economies. But in the past, it really is true that there was a much greater churning of jobs. So there were huge numbers of jobs being destroyed all the time, not only in agriculture, uh, in domestic service and domestic industry and in a whole range of industrial positions and service positions that have all disappeared. I don't know if one ever reads a kind of Dickens novel or something from the 19th century, there's all these jobs. You have to look up what they mean because you have no idea what those specific employments are referring to. Jobs are constantly being destroyed. The economy depends on this engine of growth to create new jobs to replace those that are being destroyed. And so really the capacity of the economy to create jobs, it depends less on the, um, you might say it depends both on the rate of job destruction and the rate of job creation. And what I'm claiming is that the real story here is a slowdown in the rate of job creation, not due as the automation theorists believe to, um, to a rapid rate of technological change in all these new industries, but really just because the economy is not growing very quickly. Yeah, and in fact, you write that during the heyday of the post-war economic and manufacturing boom that, quote, manufacturing employment, in fact, grew most rapidly in those lines where technical innovation was happening at the fastest pace because it was in those lines that prices fell the fastest, stoking the growth of demand for the products. And you write that the, the automation theorist argument as a whole is premised on the idea that what happened to manufacturing with automation will happen to services. But then you note that to appraise that argument, we have to first understand what indeed has happened to manufacturing. So where did manufacturing jobs go if if the machines didn't take them away? Yeah, I think that that, uh, that quote you read, I mean, you can just think obviously of automobiles, right? I mean, that would be the key, a key example of an industry or other kinds of consumer durables as well, where prices were just falling so quickly based on productivity growth that it created this massive consumer market for all of these different kinds of goods that people describe retrospectively as a kind of era of Fordism and mass production, right? And so it was precisely in those industries where you had all of the sucking up of labor, like all of these people were finding jobs in those industries. Um, but that process has uh, ended quite some time ago. And as I think many people know, 
not only in the United States, but many countries around the world have been experiencing deindustrialization. Now, the meaning of the term deindustrialization, it's sort of, um, there's a gap between the kind of folk or common understanding of what that might mean and the kind of more scholarly literature around the topic. So the kind of common or folk understanding of what deindustrialization would mean is simply just closing shops, right? Like factories closing down. And often um, people think of those factories as moving overseas. And that the, the kind of idea is that what's really happening here is that jobs are disappearing in the West or in the United States, and they're kind of moving abroad to other countries, especially in developing regions. And, you know, it's a little bit complicated here, uh, and I won't kind of bore you with all the details, but of course it is true that the United States has this massive um, trade deficit. Uh, trade deficit. Yeah, and so in the United States, it really is true that a lot of jobs are being lost overseas um, due to this large trade deficit. But there are other countries, uh, especially in Europe, that also have very large, um, that have also experienced deindustrialization, but have trade surpluses. Like Germany. Exactly. And Japan um, and South Korea. So that's one part of the story. And then the other part of the story is that deindustrialization is also happening in a lot of developing regions as well. So Latin America has been deindustrializing for 40 years, industrial employment growth rates. And I guess this gets to um, what I wanted to say is that in the kind of folk understanding, people think about actual factories going under. But in the scholarly literature, deindustrialization is defined in this very particular way as a decline in the share of employment, the share of all workers who work in manufacturing. So deindustrialization in the scholarly literature means manufacturing is becoming less important to employment overall in a given country. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, over the course of a period of industrialization, what you see is that the share of all workers employed in manufacturing tends to rise for a period of time. And then when deindustrialization sets in, that process goes into reverse and the share of workers employed in industry or specifically in manufacturing, which is one large component of industry, goes into decline. And that's happening not only in countries like the United States and Germany and Japan, um, but also in South Korea, in Brazil, Mexico, and also in many countries that just never industrialized in the first place, right? In sub-Saharan Africa and in um, Southeast Asia there, and in, in fact, in uh, India as well, there are countries, or in South Asia as well, there are many countries that just never saw industrialization. And so all over the world, you have this phenomenon of a lack of industrial employment growth. But that just precisely means that the story, uh, the kind of common American story where this is to be explained by factories moving overseas isn't really adequate. The common explanation then that you'll see sometimes, especially in the automation literature, is that they kind of say, oh, you know, you know, these kinds of populist politicians think it's all about jobs moving overseas. But we really know that actually what's happening here is that productivity growth is the explanation for industrial job loss. Uh, and that's the story that really fits with the automation account to say, no, it's not jobs moving overseas. It's not going to be solved by tariff barriers. In fact, um, the true explanation is that 
industrial productivity growth over the long term is causing all these jobs to disappear. And my account is saying, no, actually, if you look at um, industrial productivity statistics, you'll see that there really isn't rapid growth in industrial productivity. Uh, and here I could talk a little bit about some weirdnesses in the American statistics numbers for manufacturing. In essence, the numbers in America are kind of a little bit are very significantly and weirdly overinflated um, due to something that any, you know, computer literate person would understand, which is that um, for a very long time in America, in the statistical world, they treated the improvement in processor speeds as being equivalent to the production of more and more computers. <laughs> um, but, you know, anyone who's worked with technology knows that the age in which you could speak of rapid um, processor speeds kind of improving everything about our use of computers, that's, that obviously um, isn't true any longer. And so the numbers in the United States are kind of overinflated due to this. But if you subtract out specifically the um, sort of microprocessor component of industry and look at the other sectors of industry that don't have this um, strange statistical feature, you can see that manufacturing productivity has actually fallen in the United States. And that maps onto what's happening in other countries like Germany and Japan, which actually have, um, and South Korea, which use many more robots than um, American factories do. There's kind of an impression of American factories as being highly roboticized, but um, the, the statistics that come from this International Robotics Federation show that the United States is actually pretty far behind uh, other advanced countries in adopting robotics. In any case, all over um, the advanced capitalist world, what we see is falling rates of productivity growth. And so the reason why jobs are disappearing, we really need to look at this other explanation, which is just that industrial output growth or industrial value added in real terms has been growing more and more slowly over time. And in order to explain why industry is suffering from this problem, that um, they just aren't able to expand at the rapid clip that they used to expand at, we need an alternative explanation. And that's worsening over that's, capacity. Yeah. So I, I take this explanation again from my advisor when I was a graduate student, Robert Brenner, uh, which is that the, essentially over time, I mean, one could go back a little bit further in the history here. Maybe I should do that. Please. Yeah. So in the immediate post-war era, the U.S. advance over all of its competitors was really incredible. Um, U.S. productivity, I think, was more than double in manufacturing and I think generally productivity levels across Europe. And so the U.S. had this you know, huge kind of technological advance over its competitors. And the question was what it was going to do with this. Initially, the proposal during the war was to, um, by Henry Morgenthau, was to reduce Germany to an agricultural country and to remove its uh, technological and manufacturing capacity. But in the face of um, the Cold War, uh, which, was, which was sort of ramping up, and also a number of other factors that had to do with the incapacity of the United States to um, restore free trade under these conditions of very persistent trade imbalances in the early post-war period, the U.S. decided to engage in a, a project of um, pushing for Germany and then also, in a little bit later, Japan to become industrial regional powerhouses, to integrate their um, regional economies and to um, kind of move under 
the U.S. security umbrella within the context of uh, the Cold War. And so this process, um, which depended really crucially on the devaluation of German and Japanese currencies in 1949, as well as currencies across Europe, in that moment in 1949, when the value of those currencies fell, uh, the reason they did that was to improve the uh, competitiveness of European and then also Japanese products in other countries. So I don't know how obvious this is, but in essence, if you know, if you make the German mark, which was the currency at that time, if you devalue the mark, then it means that German products are much more affordable in third countries compared to say US products. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. If you if a country's currency is worthless and their products are cheaper on the world market vis-a-vis other currencies that people are buying them with. Exactly. And so in doing that, they created these conditions for the emergence of these European and Japanese powerhouse economies. And that gave rise, was an essential component of uh, the post-war boom when there really was dramatic and rapid economic growth worldwide. A sort of side note about that is that those devaluations came at the expense of working class buying power in those countries. So devaluing the Japanese currency or devaluing the German currency meant that workers in those countries had much less buying power themselves. And there were massive protests against that. Uh, Those governments put down those protests. And that was part of a story of how the left got washed out of power uh, in the early post-war period and set up a very conservative uh, 1950s and early 60s. But the effect of doing that was to uh, create this massive boost to their economies, and they rapidly reindustrialized. And Europe, more broadly, especially Italy and some other countries, saw really rapid industrialization in that era. But in doing so, they created the conditions that ended up undermining the post-war boom. So the idea is that the post-war boom was actually a self-undermining process precisely by uh, spreading industrial capacity all around the world, which was really a a new thing for an imperial power to do, right? To kind of create and stoke the expansion of its own competitors. And over time, that just created a much more crowded world market. And it isn't only that countries like Germany and Japan began to compete pretty readily with the United States on world markets. Starting in the mid-1960s, German and Japanese goods really flooded into the United States and started competing in the previously impenetrable U.S. domestic market. And this is similar to to the late Judah Stein's argument that the U.S. traded its manufacturing power for the U.S.-led global security order. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that what happened then in the 1960s is that a lot of U.S. firms kind of realizing that compared with undervalued currencies and cheaper labor and very high end or kind of ever more productive overseas competitors, their technological frontier advantages, the fact that they had the most advanced factories in the world that no longer provided a kind of easy or permanent advantage, right, in global markets. And that's why in the mid-1960s, you see so many firms in the U.S. beginning to um, move production overseas and really seeking out, uh, especially South Korean and Taiwan, but also um, Indian. Uh, Puerto Rico was a very important early site as well 
of um, overseas assembly, right? And kind of the beginnings of the building out of global supply chains. And that also explains why over time, uh, this process hasn't really ever kind of stabilized or achieved equilibrium because more and more countries are being brought in as um, bases for competition between the main European, East Asian, and American uh, multinational competitors. So the expanding of supply chains has kind of increased the number of countries that are churning within the same process of uh, international competition and made that competition even more fierce. Your articles critique a sort of conventional left account of the role of globalization in deindustrialization, in causing deindustrialization. But if I read you right, you sort of return to an account of of globalization to explain deindustrialization, just not in, I guess, the one-two-step offshoring way that we typically think of it. Because you write, quote, it is commonly assumed that deindustrialization must be the result of production facilities moving offshore. But you look at a bunch of different countries and you say in none of those countries, quote, has manufacturing job loss been associated with declines in manufacturing output. But as you just discussed, you write that the creation of all of this new manufacturing capacity, first in post-war Europe and then throughout other countries throughout the world, that this created a, quote, global redundancy in technological capacities, which in turn led to overcapacity, and that overcapacity has then led to profits depending on companies and countries trying to take market share from one another. And so is this still a globalization story, just a different one than a somewhat different one than the one we conventionally think about on the left? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that the thing that people recognize is that many of the firms in East Asia are suppliers for American multinationals and that they're actually part of an American competitive strategy, for example, right? And so when American companies are utilizing these overseas suppliers, they are themselves competing with all of these other uh, major multinationals in other countries, say Germany, Japan, South Korea, and so on, who are also building out supply chains and kind of competing along the same lines. So it's not so much that uh, I think that there's a kind of popular story in which first world companies are competing with, say, third world companies. Um, whereas, in fact, what's happening is that there are these major global giants of production, um, not only in the United States, but in other advanced capitalist countries. And they are all competing and using uh, playing suppliers off of one another in uh, to their advantage. And now, of course, for many years now, China has been developing its own um, multinational corporations that are themselves capable of um, competing in those markets and relying on their own networks of suppliers to achieve the same thing, much like uh, happened in uh, other countries like South Korea. So this, there's a process, of course, where more and more of these big firms are competing and relying on huge oversupplies on the part of their own suppliers, right? They're able to play these suppliers off of one another to um, keep profits very centralized within their firms. So it's definitely a story of globalization, global competition. Um, it's just one that recognizes that, I guess in a way, what, what's really important to recognize is that this process has generally increased competition worldwide and resulted in slowing economic growth everywhere 
that kind of contrasts, I think, with a story that maybe focuses more on inequality alone and sort of says that there are some firms that are doing really well and that all of the workers are suffering. That's totally true, but it kind of misses the larger system-wide story, right, of slowdown. I think globalization, I guess what I'm trying to say is that oftentimes globalization is associated in many people's minds with a kind of dynamism at the expense of workers. Whereas the reality is that it is coming at the expense of workers, but its effect has been to cause global economic stagnation and kind of system fragility, which of course we are seeing now on a pretty massive scale. If falling output is rooted in the problem of of worsening overcapacity, why then is there insufficient demand and why couldn't increased demand be the solution as it was during the heyday of Keynesianism? Is this is this because the expansion of service sector work is fundamentally premised on that work being super exploitable at such low wages? Is that why the the Fordist model of priming demand through high wages, is that why that no longer works? It's a very interesting question. And I think that um, it's one that in a certain way has a simple answer, but then of course, one can give much more complicated answers. I think that at a very early point, critics of Keynesianism already in the 1950s pointed out that a lot of unemployment is not what the Keynesians kind of focused on, which is what they call demand deficient unemployment. So the idea is that there are factories with unused capacity and people without jobs, and that by raising demand, um, by stoking demand or stimulating demand, you can kind of push those two back together, right? You can kind of get to full employment by adding unused capacity and unused workers, kind of encouraging them to come together and produce. And that's why Keynesianism is supposed to generate a kind of free lunch. You know, there's actually all this potential in the economy that's just not being used, and we can we can kind of fulfill that potential. And in fact, that is the Keynesian term um, for full, they talk about full employment in terms of potential GDP, the potential growth rate of the economy versus its actual growth rate. So early on, critics pointed out that a lot of unemployment takes a different form of what they called structural unemployment. So what they meant by that was that the kinds of, um, uh, the people were losing jobs in industries that just weren't going to grow. It wasn't that there was unused capacity there. It's that um, jobs were simply uh, disappearing because those industries didn't need as many workers to produce what they were producing. And then um, the problem was then to kind of find new jobs for people to go into. And structural unemployment on the part of these kinds of um, critics of Keynesianism in the 50s and 60s, I think their imagination was that there were all of these other jobs for people to go into. And so we'll have to talk about the kinds of jobs that actually appeared. But already from the 1970s, when deindustrialization started, and you had all of this effort on the part of Keynesians in governments to, they recognized the problem, and they thought we would stimulate our way out of it. But that stimulation generated inflation, and also in many countries just didn't lead to falling unemployment. Um, especially in Europe. And so over time, of course, that strategy transformed into the current kind of neoliberal landscape. That's on the one hand. So part of the story here would be that in reality, um, the problem that economies faced is a kind of structural unemployment. 
like these industries that are sloughing off jobs. It's not that um, with a little bit of stoking, they could bring together their unused capacity and, and unemployed workers. In fact, the global scenario is uh, structural overcapacity, right? So that's not really a kind of problem, as it were, amenable to that kind of simple Keynesian solution. The problem, of course, on the other hand, is just that um, it just doesn't seem like the, the idea that there are places for all of this unused labor to go, that there would be these dynamic other places for people to find employment also turns out not to be true. And then that requires a kind of deeper explanation. But I think if you can just understand that Keynesianism is meant to solve a problem of demand deficient unemployment, so unused capacity, unused labor, we can bring these together. If the problem is overcapacity and structural unemployment, that's a much more difficult problem for Keynesians to solve. And I think that the Keynesian story that kind of makes sense is that there was this effort that continued essentially in what Robert Brenner has called um, private Keynesianism or asset price Keynesianism. There was this idea, for example, Alan Greenspan had that by stoking kind of actually bubbles in computer technologies, um, and then later, of course, in stoking a housing bubble, you would kind of create this frothy environment that would allow, that would create the credit conditions for uh, capital to switch into these dynamic new lines that are supposed to be opening up. But we've seen time and time again that that simply doesn't happen. Right? But instead, it's a closed financialization loop that occasionally <laughs> slips out of control and blows everything else up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you because you write that the financialization is the flip side of this low growth, low demand for labor dynamic, because capital goes quote chasing returns to the ownership of relatively liquid assets rather than investment mm-hmm. in new fixed capital. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what has to be explained, right? There's just so much capital and so much unused labor, and so much difficulty bringing them together. And it seems like the explanation or my, my account of the explanation is just that the kinds of jobs that are available, like in the era of deindustrialization and the unwinding of the industrial growth engine, what we find is that industry was actually pretty specific in being amenable to really rapid increases in productivity. That whole story that you mentioned before, where rapidly rising productivity leads to falling prices, leads to this massive expand expansion and consumer demand leads to growing employment. There's a kind of virtuous cycle that is potentially part of the industrialization process. And that cycle turns out not to be, as it were, a kind of general feature of capitalist economies, but one that's more specific to the era of uh, industrialization. So once industrialization runs down, what we're left with is a very different dynamic, one that, in my view, is best described by an economist who I think people on the left tend not to know that much about, because he certainly wasn't a left-wing economist, and he's still still alive and writing books, uh, William Baumol, uh, who had this theory of the cost disease, which in my view explains a lot of the remaining kind of employment growth uh, in the economy. Uh, in essence, the Baumol cost disease theory is just that you can kind of look at Different, you can arrange sectors of the economy in terms of those that experience high productivity growth and those that experience low productivity growth. Most services are in that latter category of being uh, low productivity growth 
economic activities. And the obvious reason for this is that in services, it's just proven very difficult to replace people with machines. In fact, over the long history of industrial development, a lot of what industry consists of is taking jobs that used to be done by someone you'd hire, uh, for example, to, um, well, not someone that, you know, working class people would hire, but people would hire, uh, rich people would hire uh, carriage drivers or people to um, wash their dishes and all of these kinds of things. And a big part of industrialization is finding mechanical replacements for service activities. The car, the dishwasher. Exactly. And so over time, many of these kinds of services have been transformed into what um, another economist uh, named um, Jonathan Gershuni, he called it self-service goods. So instead of um, purchasing a service, you purchase a good that allows you to do the service yourself with much less work, like the dishwasher or the car uh, that you named before. And what this means is that the activities that haven't gone through this process of industrialization, industrial transformation, the ones that remain are precisely the ones that have proven resistant to this kind of um, major increase in, or kind of not just a major one-time increase in productivity, but a transformation in what that work looks like that makes it amenable to continuous increases in productivity, which is precisely what we see in the long era of industrialization. So, and it, so it's precisely because these service jobs that are growing so much everywhere precisely for the same reasons that they're so hard to automate out of existence that they have not, as you write, quote, replaced industry as a major economic growth engine. Yeah, they can't. Exactly. And so the fact that these activities tend to have very low rates of productivity growth um, also explains another feature of that work, which I think is very obvious. Um, to anyone who's worked in the low-wage service sector, which is that precisely because it's very difficult to reduce the price of those services that are being sold on the market, um, because productivity growth rates grow so, productivity is growing so slowly, you don't get this dynamic where prices fall. In fact, the, the tendency in services is for prices to rise, and that's what gives name to the um, so-called Baumol cost disease, is the fact that services actually appear to become ever more expensive over time because compared to other activities that are seeing their prices fall, services tend not to have that dynamic. So let me see if there's an easy way to say that. It's sort of like the reality of what's happening is everything else is getting cheaper and cheaper. But the way that appears to us as consumers is that services are getting more and more expensive. Does that make sense? Hmm. No. <laughs> like the price of a hospital bed. <laughs> or another way to say it is in a generally inflationary environment, the rate of, of price change in a lot of services is just going to be much faster than the rate of price change in other activities. So cars, you know, you might not be able to buy a car for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but uh, the price of cars grows at a very slow rate. Whereas the price of a hospital bed or an education or uh, the famous example is like a seat in an opera hall or in a symphony, those things become ever more expensive over time because there's basically been no increase in labor productivity in most of those activities. In fact, as anyone knows who's worked as a teacher, teaching more students per hour tends to really depend on lower quality of education, right? Like people want to be in environments where 
like the U.S. News and World Statistic or U.S. News and World Report kind of college statistics, they talk about a good school as being a school with very few uh, students per teacher, right? It's like the, the opposite of the idea of industrial productivity growth. You want to have a higher quality of education is associated with teachers teaching fewer students rather than more. Does that make sense? Yeah, but then you also argue at the same time that services become cheaper for wealthy people to consume relative to their income because of exploding inequality, whereby with growing inequality, it, quote, begins to make sense for richer households to hire the poor to perform tasks they would otherwise do for themselves, solely because of the extreme difference in the price of their respective labors. Yeah, I think that that was beautifully depicted in uh, the Oscar-winning film Parasite, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where uh, a very rich family is employing all of these people to do this kind of work that they would be doing themselves, even to the degree of just listening to them complain about their lives. Um, instead of complaining to themselves, they're like complaining to this external individual who has to take on that responsibility for them, in addition to driving them around and taking care of their children and cooking for them, doing their laundry and everything else. So this is a phenomenon, I should say, that's true on the one hand of rich people who can hire more and more poor people around them as inequality increases. It's also a feature, it should be said, of the economy in general, that you have all of these jobs where in order to provide a service at a lower price and increase the demand for that service, employers rely on their ability to find workers to super exploit in the sense of being able to pay them lower than average wages. So you have whole sectors of the economy, like Walmart, of course, is the, is the kind of go-to example of this for a very long time, where the Walmart's ability to capture all of this um, market share has depended on their capacity to really squeeze their workforce as much as possible down to the penny, right, and to pay them very low rates. And so what we see in a lot of services is that, and this also, it's a little, it's very interesting because it all depends on countries' labor laws, a lot of European countries have stricter laws around being able to hire um, particularly low-wage workers, although those protections have been eroded over time. And I could talk a little bit about those institutional differences. But in the United States, where um, minimum wages have not uh, really risen in line with inflation, there are all these opportunities to um, create a demand for services by paying workers lower wages and then translating that to the consumer in the form of lower prices. So you have a whole economy that's kind of creating space for workers through this low wage involutionary dynamic. And that experience in the United States is replicated all around the world in formal sector, which employs very large and in some contexts, the majority of workers in many countries are employed in informal activities where they rely, as uh, Mike Davis pointed out in The Planet of Slums, on the similar involutionary dynamic where people are able to make space for themselves in markets by uh, agreeing to take lower and lower wages to, to self-exploit in order to create a demand for their services. So that's not something that William Baumol talks about, but I think that the Baumol analysis of the cost disease and the tendency of services to have very low productivity growth helps us understand in our own, in a kind of separate account, why services have become such a choice site 
for this form of involutionary underemployment, where jobs are created by lowering the wages of the workers who take them. And that sets us up nicely for the automation theorists' third proposition, which is that this full automation of society that they see coming around the bend, quote, should entail humanity's collective liberation from toil, but because we live in a society where most people must work in order to live, this dream may well turn out to be a nightmare. You write that this is not either what's happening or what's going to happen because, in fact, capitalism already has a response to this crisis and falling output and declining demand for labor, and that is not the mass unemployment envisioned by automation theorists, but rather what we see right now, which is mass underemployment, the mass precarization of labor. Why is this what happens, that we see more flexibilized and less stable employment rather than more unemployment? So that, yeah, and of course, I mean, we have to modify this, and we should talk a little bit, I hope, later on about COVID-19 and the oh, yeah. recession we're in because this is, you know, part of this dynamic. But up until 2019 uh, or up until 2020, what we definitely saw is that uh, the reality is already existing mass underemployment around the world. And the obvious reason for this is that people just have to work in order to survive and as I mentioned before, due to uh, in the industrialization of agriculture and a number of other dynamics, we live in a world, demographic ones as well, we live in a world where a very large part of humanity really needs to find some kind of labor-based income in order to survive. And that's also part of the global competition story, right? Because as we know, um, suppliers depend on all of these people needing jobs uh, in order to provide low-wage work all around the world. And so I like this line from Mike Davis, again, from Planet of Slums, which, which had a big influence over me and my work when it came out, which is that he says that the late capitalist triage of humanity has already taken place. That is to say that the story of, um, on the one hand, this worsening oversupply of labor, and on the other hand, an under demand for labor around the world, also taking place here, of course, in the United States, has created conditions already for a very long time in which people find it very difficult to find jobs, and yet they have to find jobs in order to work. And so they're taking all of these very poor jobs, precarious jobs to survive. That reality already exists. And then it's one that I think part of why the automation theory seems to make so much sense is that the automation theorists can just point to an already existing reality and say, see, this is what's going to happen. This reality that already exists is also going to be, is somehow going to be the future that we will experience. And I think that's a very powerful evidence for their case that turns out, when you think about it for a moment, obviously not to be true. That is to say that um, the already existing problem of underemployment all around the world cannot be explained by a future technological breakthrough that hasn't yet taken place. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig was brought to you by our listeners at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which is hosting a series of events regarding the political response to the coronavirus crisis that might be perfect for Dig listeners like you. The coronavirus crisis 
like all others, is unevenly felt. Those at the receiving end of exploitation and oppression under conditions of capitalist normality also bear the brunt of social, economic, and health impacts of the virus. Haymarket Books is determined to offer a political response to the crisis, believing that their mission to support struggles for social and economic justice is more vital than ever. In collaboration with their authors and a range of partners, Haymarket is organizing an ongoing series of events to allow us to respond both to the coronavirus crisis itself and to maintain our collective political, cultural, and social life in a manner that fosters struggle, solidarity, and debate. Sign up for scheduled events over at the Haymarket Books YouTube channel to make sure that you don't miss future events. On the global level, as we've discussed, deindustrialization first hit early industrializers like the U.S., Europe, Japan, beginning in the 60s. Then it hit and is continuing to hit middle and low-income countries before they ever fully industrialized or even industrialized at all. What does this reveal about the commonplace ideas that underpin the the whole idea of of development that countries advance up from agriculture to industry and then finally arrive at at services mm. and what does it instead show about how the the world system has actually always operated and where it seems to be heading that's a great question i mean i think the obvious point is just that development in the sense of catching up to the leaders in um the capitalist economy right uh, in that kind of maybe, I mean, we could talk more broadly about what the meaning of development would be in a in a different world, right? But I think that, and I think that part of the problem, obviously, is that sometimes those two things are, um, it's suggested that development in the kind of human sense and development in the sense of catching up to the leaders in the capitalist world are equivalent. In fact, the countries that have done best in catching up to the leaders have been ones that have... Um, you know, had, I mean, they, the, the, like catch up countries like South Korea, for example, and Taiwan have had to have, uh, you know, authoritarian governments really suppressing the um, wage growth in their own populations in order to undertake this. Or uh, even just look at the long running wage suppression in Germany. Exactly. Yeah. So development uh, in the sense of catch up is something that is a sort of often imposed on populations um, and is very, uh, very trying. Also, historically, it's involved um, being willing to take on incredibly polluting and destructive industries. So in East Asia, not only do they take on, people often refer to the, the way that labor-intensive industries move to those areas, but another kind of thing that moved there was highly polluting and health-destructive chemical industries and, and artificial um, additives and so on. And so this, in any case, this um, process of development has been incredibly difficult to achieve. It's been achieved by very few countries. Those countries have um, had real assistance from the United States because they were countries that, like Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, were part of a U.S. Cold War strategy. They're also, you know, I mean, one could talk about this at length. They're also very interestingly countries that Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and 
then later China, but those first three in particular, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, were countries that under U.S. pressure undertook truly radical land reform uh, in the early post-war period. They, were the, they had the most radical land reform of any non-socialist revolution country. We'll make you do it under military rule and we'll overthrow your government with our <laughs> with our national security state if you do it, depending yeah. on the moment yeah. and context. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like while they were defeating land reform in Guatemala, they were imposing it, right, in um, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, which is itself a kind of fascinating story. In any case, yes, over the long term, very few countries have been able to achieve development They've achieved it under really specific and, as it were, kind of unfair competitive conditions. And the idea that countries just kind of, that development is somehow built in or that if countries just adopt the right mix of institutions, that ends up often being a way of describing it as their own fault for failing to adopt these institutions. Also, countries that have developed successfully have often used, have required very, um, really intense control over the bureaucracies that manage uh, the interface between state and economy um, because states have played a really outsized role in the development process, guiding it through financing and picking winners and having, uh, yeah. In any case, there's a whole story there, right? But the thing is that one might say, even given all of these specifics about the development process, Uh, which we can't go into in detail. In general, it's easier for countries to develop when the whole world economy is growing very quickly. So during the post-war boom era, which was a big boom for Europe and Japan and the United States as well, the generally very high growth world conditions created space for all different kinds of countries to expand, even if it was only through exporting raw materials and agricultural goods to these industrial powerhouses. There was a kind of broader environment that allowed for more industrial development. What we've seen since the 1970s is that as the uh, world economy has become ever more competitive and as growth rates have slowed down, space for development has also really closed down. And then on top of that, uh, in the context of the third world debt crisis in 1982, Um, truly development-destructive policies were imposed over large parts of the world that made them suffer even more under these conditions of um, hyper-competition and increasing global instability. So, uh, To what what degree is the, in in your account, would the transition from import substitution industrialization in the global south to the Washington Consensus be explained as part of a political, a more political story of, uh, of of neoliberal reaction? And to what degree, though, would it or to what degree would it be explained as determined by 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 this growing problem of of overcapacity? Well, that's a great question and one that um, I wrote about in my dissertation, which eventually I will also publish as a as a Verso book. But let me see if I can give you a, a quick summary answer, because I do think that that story is generally kind of talked about in a way that I would disagree with in the kind of general left discourse. Uh, so the standard story, I guess, is that up until the third world debt crisis in the 1980s, countries were using import substitution strategies. They had a kind of 
model, which they took from uh, the first world about how to develop, where they threw up tariff barriers, promoted um, certain industries, and they were doing this successful internally focused development strategy until the third world debt crisis and IMF imposed structural adjustment forced them to transition to an export-led model, which variously failed, um, made them open to major exploitation by um, U.S. and other multinational corporations and or sort of imposed on them deindustrialization, kind of returned them to focusing on agricultural or raw material production. So the issue with that story is that it was already the case that import substitution industrialization started to go into crisis earlier in the post-war era. So it was already the case by the early 1960s or mid-1960s that this strategy of exporting agricultural goods in order to increase your own internal industrial capacities, that strategy was already running into crisis much earlier than people understand. And so if we look at the share of exports in a country like Brazil or um, Mexico or Indonesia or Thailand or wherever in the world, if we look at the share of their exports that are agricultural goods, the shift really takes place much earlier. It starts taking place in the mid-1960s. There's a wave of coups across the world, often military governments taking power in the 1960s. And those governments use their tight control over politics to impose devaluations on um, developing country currencies. And they actually try to repeat in a way with much fewer resources, the kind of strategy of export-led development already starting at that point. So the reality is that a lot of developing countries are already trying to do this export-led model. They're tying themselves into these U.S. Um, supply chains, which are, as I said before, already expanding from the mid-1960s. So countries are trying to get in on that. And it's precisely the, um, the, the turbulence and kind of um, dramatic slowdowns that take place in the 1970s around industrial growth globally that eventually end up detonating uh, the third world debt crisis. And that lead them to, so in other words, it's the pre-existing contradictions in the ISI model that lead third world countries to take on so much petrodollar fuel debt in the first place. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, you know, um, as we were talking about before with the Green Revolution, a lot of these industrialization of agriculture just results as, you know, I mean, there's this Prebisch-Singer hypothesis or the structuralist or dependency theory. Uh, the basis of it is that is that the prices of agricultural goods in world markets tend to fall much more quickly than industrial goods. So agricultural exporting countries have to export more and more agricultural goods or raw materials in order to import the industrial goods that are being produced by first world countries, that process already, yeah, generates a kind of um, a crisis of ISI in the 1960s. So those countries are already um, trying to do export industrialization earlier. Yeah, and then the difficulty of doing that and the attempt to use petrodollars to fuel a continuation of this export-led strategy begins to falter when uh, the capacity of those countries 
in the third world, um, those industrializing countries, their capacity to export to the first world gets really cut off in 1979 after the Volcker shock and the big recession. So yeah, the problem with IMF structural adjustment is that it imposes a really bad set of development strategies on uh, third world countries that are incredibly punishing to their populations and open them up to markets precisely at a time when um, market dependence is becoming ever more unstable and generating less growth. But in a way, that story has to be kind of placed properly within the larger global context, which is that the whole world economy is growing more slowly and the economy is becoming ever more competitive and very few countries that are doing well in that context for very specific reasons like in East Asia and then later China are able to outcompete all of these other countries um, in the developing world. So developments become much more difficult to achieve precisely because of this hyper-competitive global environment. And the structural adjustment process made that worse, but it intervened in an already bad global environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. What your account really emphasized for me, although this is not a main focus, at least in the NLR articles, that the global South can't simply replicate the global North for all these structural reasons. And that one of those one of those structural reasons, I think, is the diachronic reason that that's sort of the basis of your argument, that there's this over time, this change that makes growth slow. But then there's also the synchronic reason, which is that the entire world system always depends on there being a hierarchical order. And the whole idea of development's principal ideological function then is to obscure that this is the case. Yeah, definitely. I mean, let me also just say, I think something sort of that proves the point is that there was a period from 2003 to 2008 or so where growth rates appeared to be picking up in the so-called BRICS countries, right? So it wasn't just Chinese rapid growth in China, but India, uh, Russia included in that list of the BRICS, um, but especially also Brazil and uh, South Africa. This coincides with the commodity boom. Exactly. There's this commodity boom and people are talking about convergence, overcoming centuries of divergence between the incomes of rich countries and poor countries due to colonialism and imperialism. Suddenly, in this period, that's all coming to an end and we're going to see this major convergence And that period was a period of where on the world scale, there actually was um, some uptick in rates of industrial value added was expanding. Like the, the global industry was growing somewhat more quickly compared to its general trend of, um, of falling rates of growth. And the world economy was growing a little bit more quickly compared to its general trend of falling growth rates. And that's what inspired this kind of excitement, as it were about the whole thing maybe creating these conditions in which development really could be achieved. But what we saw, of course, was that that period really relied on, uh, that period's growth really relied on a massive financial bubble um, in the United States and in other countries. And once that popped, it really began to eradicate uh, the basis for that shared growth. And and now we've seen, especially in... um, Brazil and South Africa, well before the COVID-19 recession, they had very, very slow uh, and, and, you know, kind of permanently, especially in the case of Brazil, in and out of recessions. 
India's growth rate, of course, also slowing down and, the chi and China's growth rate also slowing down and Russia also mired in a lot of economic problems. So uh, yeah, the general, con when the economy seems like it's improving, even just a little bit, people get really excited, economists, but also, you know, many, many masses of hundreds of millions of people all around the world. It does seem like things are actually going to work, but uh, the bases of it are so fragile and uh, financial. And when they collapse, they have really horrendous consequences. I'm glad that we got to the commodity boom because this contradiction that we've been talking about, this this idea that the the global south can replicate the global north's path, even though that's the global north path is premised on that being impossible, reminds me of the ecological contradictions posed by fossil fuel extraction and combustion where the first world used up the vast majority of the world's carbon budget and used that budget to develop itself. And so the third world simply cannot follow because we can't emit more carbon. So in both in both the case of carbon emissions and industrialization, in both cases, poor countries at the bottom rungs of the world system simply structurally cannot follow the first world country's lead. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a devastating environment. I mean, we're seeing this now, of course, in an extreme way. And I think that the, the as you point out, the, the ecological story being brought in makes it even more devastating. I guess my kind of hope for the world is that on the other hand, we do live in a time where the world's population uh, is healthier than before, um, present, you know, the present uh, context maybe not not excluded. And um, people are more literate than ever before. They're more urban, they're more connected through uh, communication technologies all around the world. And so I think that, as Paul Mason said, actually, in, in, in his book on uh, post-capitalism, that these um, ever better educated and kind of populations seeking to improve their lives will not stand for rising inequality uh, in a world of rising sea levels. And we did indeed have a year of pretty significant global protests last year and COVID and the economic and health devastation that's causing suggests that we may see a lot more of it, though in ways that I don't think any of us are arrogant enough to attempt to predict too precisely <laughs> right now. But on the ecological question, I did want to ask about one other point, which is that how does sort of like a Timothy Mitchell style assessment of capitalist history fit in with what what you're arguing in terms of have some of these past explosions of growth, these these significant qualitative transformations in the history of global capitalism, to what extent were those premised on certain break, breakthroughs in, in energy? And then to what extent is the current growth crisis faced by capitalism related to the the impossibility of, of replicating the coal and then oil breakthroughs? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm far from an expert in that field, right? But my sense is that... Um, growth has been incredibly reliant on cheap sources of energy. It just, to me, it just is striking how much, given 
the truly massive extent of underemployment around the world, a degree of underemployment that is in no way captured by global unemployment rates. In order to meet people's needs, we just have to find a way to do so that is not dependent on giving them a job. That is to say that um, a world in which the only people whose demand is effective is demand that's backed by a wage, so that we have to kind of create massive quantities of employment as the condition of being able to consider the needs that people have. Uh, that world is, in my view, no longer rationally possible um, and has to be done away with. Now, of course, you know, it's in the interests of uh, very powerful people not to recognize that fact. And um, that's, that's going to be the big question of the coming period. You know? One thing in terms of world system level stuff that I that we've got to touch on before we go any further is China. And you write, quote, China is a key exception, but only a partial one. So in what way is China exceptional? And is China simply somewhat exceptional for now at this moment in history? Or is, it, is its manufacturing and in particular an economy as a whole exceptional partially in some more fundamental way? China is, I mean, it's it's not just a country, it's where a sizable portion of humanity lives. So it's, and, and it's history over the past, uh, since, since World War II, I mean, over the entire period we've really been talking about is of course totally fascinating, right? Uh, and beyond what we can get into here. But when I talked about China being exceptional, I meant very specifically with regard to the story of industrialization and deindustrialization that I had been telling before. So one thing that people don't know about China's industrial history often is that in the mid-1990s, there was a change in the program of um, reform, capitalist reform in China, where the Chinese state implemented what they call reform with, with losers that replaced an earlier policy <laughs> of reform wow. without losers. And what that meant was that all of these firms that had become non-viable uh, were no longer going to receive the resources that they needed to continue, and that a lot of state-owned enterprises in particular were either going to go under or have to be massively restructured. Um, and this is in like the north, often in the northeast and what's now China's Rust Belt. Exactly. And, you know, really uh, beautifully described in a book by Ching Kuan Li called Against the Law uh, that describes the labor struggles in China's Rust Belt in the northeast and in its Sun Belt in the, in the southeast. And the number of jobs lost in that period is just truly massive, right? Because it's such a massive country and it had so many people in industry. And the result was that on the whole, China actually deindustrialized. And all of this is a bit difficult because it requires balancing official Chinese statistics against all these estimates of different forms of, um, of industrial employment in the country. But according to the kind of standard statistics available by the BLS, which generates or did until very recently generate this comparative data, we can see that China just deindustrialized in the 1990s, much as it did everywhere else. What made China exceptional is that in the late 90s and early 2000s, China's um, export-led drive generated an incredible amount of industrial employment growth in 
the Southeast Sunbelt region. And so China bucked the trend and had a really strong industrialization, um, though it took many places like Shenzhen. Exactly. And it, and it took it took many years for that growth to kind of make up for uh, the loss of employment from the 90s. But then it did. However, starting in the mid 2010s or even a little earlier, as the effects of the global downturn from 2008 began to ripple through the world economy, and as uh, China's massive um, state stimulus in the aftermath of that began to kind of wear off, China also began to deindustrialize. And so many factories, uh, they in in the southeast, in the Pearl River Delta area and in Shenzhen, they sort of simultaneously, some of those factories moved to other places within those regions that are cheaper and hired fewer workers. And so what we've seen, it's a little bit difficult to see these trends because they're just beginning or they're just beginning to show up in the statistics. But I think it's widely understood that China has been now deindustrializing for about six years or so. And so China is now itself experiencing uh, the same kind of dynamic. Once again, that dynamic being led by a falling rate of output growth, slowing rates of industrial expansion rather than rising rates of manufacturing productivity growth. And so that's the sense in also in which they're a partial exception, because now China is itself, I think, will see over time, it's going to begin to look like a deindustrializing middle-income country, much like other parts of the world, but with a very, very large population. This brings us to the automation theorists' fourth and final proposition, which is that the only solution to the problem of robots taking everyone's jobs is universal basic income, or UBI, which has emerged really powerfully amidst the mass unemployment caused not by robots but by COVID-19 as a necessary emergency lifeline just to keep people alive. And indeed, the one-time checks being cut by the government could be considered a form of UBI, though obviously a woefully insufficient one. Let's start with the the basics. What What is UBI in its many various formulations? And why do you think that posing UBI as a utopian horizon, or even really as like a major priority in the short term, is, is a mistake? Right. I should say, uh, so I'll, I'll say what I understand UBI to be and talk about a lot of its positive features um, before explaining why I don't think that it is the utopian solution, or maybe in another sense, it's a utopian solution, i.e. not a very uh, good one in practical terms. But UBI, the basic idea is that we just should give everyone just for being human beings. Um, and then, you know, that that concept obviously can be sort of uh, or the, the the expanse of the universality can be significantly reduced when you call it a kind of citizen's income or something like that. But the idea is just to pay people an amount of money every month um, that allows them to meet their needs and therefore gives them a lot more security, income security. And set at a high enough level, um, UBI would just end poverty outright by giving people enough money to raise them technically above the poverty line. 
What seems very uh, positive about this proposal, especially from an American standpoint, is that in America, instead of having universal benefits, we have a long history of having means-tested benefits, right? And that has a lot to do with the very racist construction of the American welfare state and its kind of tendency to um, have highly bureaucratic processes that make it very difficult for poor people and especially racialized populations to access uh, welfare benefits that they're otherwise entitled to and creates... It requires that they act as a condition of that access submit to all kinds of surveillance and discipline. And then also the the means testing functions to allow those benefits to be stigmatized highly and thus attacked, undermined, et cetera. And we even saw this being discussed in the in the Democratic primary, right, where proposals for like universal free college um, within the Democratic Party, even that idea is like, for many, many politicians, they can't go there because they they want to have all these conditions on access to free education. And so in any case, universal benefits in general are much better than means-tested benefits. That's definitely true. And The idea is that by giving people money, in many cases, you allow them to meet the needs that they want to meet, right? Like if you give someone uh, food stamps, for example, you're telling them that they can have money, but they can only spend it on a particular type of commodity. This kind of, and there's even limits on unemployment benefits, right? Um, You have to be looking for a job. You can't be trying to start your own business. Uh, And so by giving people a cash benefit and putting no conditions on it, Uh, It makes it possible for people to kind of figure out how to meet their needs on their own. And that's not only a benefit in the United States. It's also something that people have talked about in the developing world. So there's a a trend toward, on the one hand, um, so-called conditional cash transfers or conditional cash benefits, where uh, people are simply provided with an income rather than a government service. And then in some places, that even has become a kind of there's a kind of groping towards or grasping towards a, a, a UBI, which would allow developing countries to just give money to poor people and allow them to figure out what to do with it. And again, I think- Brazil's Bolsa Familia is one of the more famous examples. Exactly. And um, in South Africa, there are a number of income transfer programs that uh, James Ferguson and his book, Give a Man a Fish, sort of, uh, talks about that are even more kind of unconditional Um, than the Brazilian programs. So that's all I think there's something very positive about that idea because it's the idea that there's a kind of dignity in being a human being and that in an ever wealthier world, we should be able to just give people money to meet their needs without requiring them to contribute anything. Like you should be able to meet your needs irrespective of contribution to the economy. And in a lot of ways, that's a very positive vision and it appeals to people for a good reason. So I I guess I I point all that out because I don't like, I think there's a tendency on the left sometimes to, to sort of know better, you know what I mean? To kind of, to kind of, oh, well, you think that's the solution. Well, look how silly and stupid you are. You don't really know what's going on. So I think it's really important to recognize um, the positive impulse behind people's adoption of that. Now, you know, the negative, of course, is that this while UBI has been promoted by some really interesting uh, groups of workers, um, think of the uh, National Welfare Rights Organization, right? Um, 
of uh, black women mostly who are fighting to improve their conditions and, and adopt the UBI. Martin Luther King called for it. McGovern called for it. So under the name of the Demo Grant, but it does have a very, um, it has a very uh, concerning history as a neoliberal project for transforming the welfare state. Yeah. So, 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 so what are, what are the key differences in, in left liberal and conservative and, and libertarian visions of UBI and what, and what can we learn, if anything, from the fact that both automation discourse and this solution to it, UBI, is embraced by such a politically disparate cast of characters. Yeah, I think that the fact that the proposal has been adopted across such a wide spectrum of political perspectives is something that people talk about as a kind of positive feature of it. But actually, of course, the devil is in the details because these proposals differ massively in terms of what they actually offer. And something that I was very surprised to learn and very disturbed by is that on the right, one of the main advocates of UBI is uh, Charles Murray, the infamous infamous uh, racist who wrote The Bell Curve. He's one of the major proponents. He talks about it at the American Enterprise Institute. And I wouldn't want to kind of make a guilt by association argument, but I was surprised how many uh, mainstream UBI authors uh, refer to Murray and even adopt parts of his program. Andy Stern imagines a kind of uh, um, uh, fictitious conversation between Charles Murray and Martin Luther King. But how many of these authors... God, Andy Stern has turned out to be even worse than I <laughs> ima- than I knew him to be when he was in charge of SEIU, but go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just, I'm always, I'm sort of disturbed by how often his proposals are brought into the story without any kind of... Um, critical distancing, right, from the man and the um, racist Eugenicist. Eugenicist program that he is promoting and reading his books. I mean, that really comes through in the type of UBI he imagines. But in any case, the kind of um, overriding feature of that right-wing vision is that UBI replaces the existing welfare state generously and in a way out of touch with, I guess, present-day realities on the political right. Charles Murray, infamous racist, does suggest that the Postal Service should be kept, but that most of the other. And I think also he accepts um, some amount of uh, public education as well. He's not as big a fan of the voucher system. But in general, the idea is liquidate the welfare state and just give people the money that otherwise is used to fund the welfare state. So it's a liquidationist uh, perspective. It touches on a few things at once because there's we we've established that means testing is is terrible, but there there are different approaches to to universal programs. You could provide universal cash for people to spend as they would like, as UBI would, and or to be fair, and or you could universally decommodify services. And the right, as you're pointing out, wants to use UBI to replace what few decommodified services already exist. Exactly. And that is a very neoliberal proposal also in the sense that instead of, precisely instead of decommodifying aspects of social life, um, providing them for free through a non-market form of organization that can take all different kinds of things into account, not just efficiency, but quality and fairness and all that kind of um, these, these things that are left out of the market world, instead of doing that, 
neoliberals try to create markets, right? To find ways to include more people in markets and to create markets where they don't exist. So for example, things like cap and trade. So UBI in that sense um, is a kind of perfect neoliberal solution because it's one that allows you to respond to uh, lack of housing, poverty, lack of education, all of these different things uh, through the market rather than as an antagonist to the market. The difference between the right-wing proposal of liquidating the welfare state and the left-wing proposal is that the left-wing proposal doesn't liquidate the welfare state, but for that reason is significantly more expensive, right? And that, I think, is really important in the context of an economy that's having ever more trouble generating economic growth. So I think that's something that's really important about the automation story. Part of why its account is sort of optimistic, it's overly optimistic about the solutions is that because they believe themselves to live in a world where there's more and more being, being produced with automation, ever more advanced technologies generating this cornucopia of goods, they see the main problem simply as one of distribution. And you can imagine that in a world economy or in an economy where the economy is growing super rapidly, it's just not generating any jobs, the main problem that they see would be one of distribution. And so UBI is a way for them to kind of imagine a solution to this distribution problem that really in a lot of ways doesn't change or, or have to, as the Marxists say, uh, intervene within the, what is that, the... Um, you know, within within the kind of hidden realm of production. You have a great passage along these lines. You write, quote, For UBI to serve as the basis of a left-wing vision of exit from capitalism, the automation theorist's analysis would need to be correct. Today's persistently low de labor demand would have to originate in rapidly rising productivity levels associated with a fast pace of economic change. Were that the case, the main issue society would confront would be rising economic inequality, which would be rectified by distributing more and more income as UBI payments rather than as wages. If instead, as I have argued, contemporary underdemand for labor is the result of global overcapacity and depressed investment, driving down rates of overall economic growth, then waging such a distributional struggle would quickly become a zero-sum conflict between labor and capital, blocking or at least dramatically slowing progress towards a freer future. As such, we would need a plan for wresting control over the economy away from asset owners. Yet, UBI proposals say little about how to reduce capital's sway over production. I th thought that was really fascinating because if automation theorists identify the issue as one of misallocated abundance, then just simply redistribution is the solution. But if there is if the actual problem, as you identify it, is a, a sort of scarcity under capitalism, and then any attempt to substantively improve labor standing vis-a-vis -vis capital would immediately lead to, to serious conflict because capital would push back with reason. And so then you write, quote, a left that wants to use UBI to usher in a different sort of world would therefore need to present us with its minor plan, referring to the the plan to socialize the Swedish economy under the social democratic government there in the 70s, bringing about the progressive socialization of the means of production via a planned transfer of asset ownership to society at large. The problem 
is that it was precisely the threat of capital disinvestment during the crisis of the 1970s that led to the original Minor plan in Sweden being cast aside. Such a plan would be even harder to realize today when mass working-class organizations are much weaker and economic growth slower. Given this context, in which a capital strike would quickly push the economy deeply into crisis, we need to set our sights higher on the conquest of production. Taking the power to control investment decisions away from capitalists and rendering the capital strike inoperative forms an essential precondition of our collective progress toward a post-scarcity future. I think I think that's like a solid critique of not only UBI, but of the problem confronting social democratic reform projects in general. But but my question to you then is do revolutionaries have a better plan than reformists? Because there has to be some sort of plan to get from present neoliberal hellscape to a better world, either a much better world or even a marginally better world. And my suspicion has always been or that the path to a much better world, that we have to get to a, a somewhat better world first. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, these are these are <laughs> incredibly difficult uh, questions, and I, I'm not I'm not sort of supposing that I know the answer to them. In fact, a lot of my interest in the automation discourse comes from my sense that we on the left, as it were, often don't. A lot of the accounts of what that better world, even somewhat better world, would look like come from 20th century projects that seem to have been defeated or at least require pretty massive changes, right, in order to be viable, whether you're thinking of, you know, some kind of revolutionary change that leads to the central planning project that doesn't seem to have worked very well and was just devastating um, in terms of human life, the social democratic or Keynesian projects that sort of made their peace with capitalism but made a better world within it, now facing this um, problem of this very long-term running down of the capitalist growth engine, really limiting their room for maneuver. And so, you know, what are the alternatives and what is the vision of the world that we are even aiming at? As one of my friends said, um, part of the problem here is that when you don't know where you're going, uh, all roads will take you there. And so having a sense of where you're going, at least helps to collapse down the different options and say something about where to go. But I think that in general, this huge problem that the kind of, that capital, capital is no longer a very viable way of organizing society, both facing its increasing economic stagnation and its long-term uh, ecologically destructive tendencies. Um, we have to find some kind of way forward. And in a sense, I'm not saying that um, I know the path, but I'd at least like to bracket that and think about what the solution might be, as it were, and to have some account of the better world that we aim to create. And then maybe we'd have some sense of how incrementally or dramatically we might be able to get there. I want to conclude by discussing how your analysis applies to this current moment that you certainly did not see coming when you were writing. A few people, 
may have guessed that it might come, but I don't think either of us were among them, which is this just profound set of interlock public health and economic crises. And, and you wrote about it recently, and you wrote, quote, Given the decade-long bull run of the stock market, one might imagine that the U.S. economy was in good shape before the crash began, and that the labor market can therefore bounce back from the novel coronavirus's punch once the public health crisis ends. However, the opposite is true. The fundamentals of the U.S. economy were already incredibly weak. It's a similar point to something I discussed with Grace Blakely in a recent interview, but that I find pretty much absent from a lot of newspaper accounts of what's going on, which is the idea that the that the economic problem is more or less limited to to this exogenous shock caused by by COVID and that the the difficulty of a successful recovery is in turn determined by how deep this acute crisis turns out to be. How does everything that we've been discussing this this crisis in in overcapacity and slowing output growth, how is that shaping the way the coronavirus economic crisis is hitting? And how do you think it will shape the so-called recovery that we will be entering sometime at some point? I guess that there's a lot of assumptions you'd have to make to even begin to answer that question, right? And it seems like one of the very obvious ones is that we really don't know what the end game of this looks like. Um, yeah. And many of the economic models sort of seem to suggest that we entered an exogenous shock and then like other shocks, there's some somehow it ends, right? And then we're out of it. And that in the world of COVID-19 has to, or of the novel coronavirus has to look like some kind of vaccine that somehow everybody gets, right? And then we're we're back to the world as it was before the crisis. And even that obviously doesn't seem very realistic. It seems like what's actually going to happen is a very faltering and perhaps with some setbacks opening as we've seen uh, already in parts of China, right? Um, but the story I'm telling in the way that it, that, it, that, it, that it affects how we should think about this is just that we've seen in the past recessions, especially in the US, that very deep recessions and high rates of unemployment have taken very long um, it's taken very long for the economy to recover from that. That is to say that we've had long jobless recoveries where um, there's just many people still unemployed or uh, who've dropped out of the labor force. And so I think that we can imagine that assuming that there's sort of like what's become for the U.S. a normal recovery uh, from this recession, it means another lost decade um, in terms of uh, just being having a lot of trouble, people having a lot of trouble finding jobs who've lost them, uh, and then also for people who have jobs, uh, winning wage increases. And so I think of people very broadly in my generation who just lived through a very long lost decade and for whom the period just before uh, the corona recession um, began uh, we're sort of finally seeing, like we were finally starting to see a tighter labor market. Um, during the, the sort of post-war golden age years, recoveries were, were, were very rapid. And then mar labor markets were tight for the entire course of the, um, the boom, as it were, post-recession period. Uh, what we've seen for a very long time now is that it, it's only at the very 
end of the boom that there's any kind of real recovery for the labor market. It's a very brief final phase of a boom and the last decade long boom was no exception to that trend. So for people, I think young people, and using that term very broadly, because I guess I'm not <laughs> quite as young as I used to be, um, but we've experienced a, a very long period of limited growth and kind of just trying to survive. And now we're all going to face yet another decade of at best the same, right? Another lost decade. And of course that phrase lost decade was one that refers to um, an even worse situation in Latin America in the 1980s. Uh, and people are using it again to, to describe Latin America's future looking to 10 years forward. It seems like everybody is, is, is really um, going to be facing at best a lost, lost decade uh, following this due to this long-term tendency to stagnation. And I just think that that is only going to add to the kind of rage and um, just the sense that we cannot take this anymore, right? I guess what I mean to say is we've already lived through one lost decade in our recent experience. And the idea of facing that again is just very hard to imagine people being able to like mentally prepare for that. Uh, and so I expect there to be a real period of contestation that follows this. I mean, what that looks like under conditions of a major health crisis, uh, when people, you know, the idea of people having protests where they are in their cars or standing all six feet apart from one another. I think that somehow those, there's, people are often very creative in overcoming those kind of technical impediments to making their voices heard. But I, I expect the, that, to, that to resume as it were, uh, in the near future. I anticipate that won't even be the necessarily the contours within which protest and civil disorder more, more generally take place across the, the global South in terms of orchestrated actions that are meant to comply with social distancing rules, because what it seems like may very well happen in large swaths of the world is that staying at home and social distancing will become economically impossible for huge numbers of people at some point. And what happens after that is hard to predict, but it, it does not add up to stability for the status quo. And I'm not romanticizing whatever happens. No, no. Next. It could be bad. I mean, I guess that a lot of <laughs> my work has been focused on explaining why people are struggling around the world and trying to give some sense of why they're doing so in the forms that they are. And uh, I guess in my view, you know, if you look at all these major social movements and now also um, in many parts of the world, I think strike waves and so on beginning to take place that um, people are really, these are the struggles of a world of increasingly slow growth inequality, difficulty finding work, austerity with respect to government services, and, you know, just the absence of a sense of future. And what I hope will happen at some point uh, is that there will be a clear sense of what the alternative is, um, what the goal is, what we could struggle for, what the better world is that we could aim at. And what I find so beautiful about fully automated luxury communism, or in a different, totally different register, something like the Green New Deal, is that they begin to, uh, they begin maybe, in my view, in a somewhat inadequate way, 
to trace out the possible contours of a better world or a future that we could actually be fighting for. And I think that once that idea of a better future becomes more generally available to people as something to struggle for and begins to take a kind of concrete form in their minds and in their in their organi organizations and struggles that that will have um, a truly massive transformative effect, which isn't to say that I guarantee that that's what's going to happen or I predict that's what's going to happen, but it's something that could happen and something that, um, you know, we can hope for. And fight for. My very last question is, if you see this not as an exogenous shock, as it's often presented as being, but rather as something that's part of a deeper biological contradiction of capitalism, what what does that mean for what we make of what's happening now and, and what might happen next? You know, I think something that I've been really watching for and, and have no sense of where exactly things are going to go is whether or not states are going to be willing under these conditions of a truly, you know, a public health crisis, something really dramatic. And as you say, something deeply, um, very much a part of the story, not just of globalization, but of a world where people eat more meat, you know, than ever before transitions in people's diets towards very uh, ecologically unsustainable um, uh, forms of food consumption, like whether states under these conditions are going to be forced to make a radical break and to, um, to, to massively increase state production and in a way undertake, as it were, state crisis activity that is suggestive in the way that uh, war production was during World War I and World War II to people, not as a kind of model for what we would have to do to build an emancipated society, but at least showing the possibility that some kind of alternative mode of organizing production is possible. Because it might be a basic requirement for stabilizing the system. Exactly, exactly. But, but I think what we're seeing and sort of, you know, quite devastatingly again for our future and what's going to happen over the next decade, it does seem like maybe already states are kind of preparing people for the sense that, um, well, you know, we, we took out our pocketbooks to give uh, these checks to people and to kind of keep them going in the crisis. And in fact, now we are going to need financial retrenchment and austerity to follow that. And if that's the path that's taken, it's going to be an incredibly, you know, it'll look like the world we've been in, right, um, for a long time, but much worse. And it's pretty devastating to imagine that outcome. But so much worse that it's hard to imagine people, even Americans, who put up with quite a, a lot in some ways in terms of a system that you'd think would have been delegitimated many times over yeah. by now, if there's not further fundamental intervention to stabilize people's basic means of of subsistence at some point, acquiescence seems just impossible to imagine, even amongst Americans. Let's hope. <laughs> well, Aaron Benenoff, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Aaron Beninov is a professor in the Social Sciences Division at the University of Chicago and a member of the EndNotes Editorial Collective. His first book, Automation in the Future of Work, is forthcoming from Verso in late 2020. 
I will link to his two New Left Review articles that we discussed, Automation and the Future of Work, Parts 1 and 2, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, forces of production and social relations, two different sides of the development of the social individual, appear to capital as mere means. In fact, however, they are the material conditions to blow this foundation sky high. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. Please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever else that allows you to rate and review podcasts, please rate and review us, because those two things ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people that you know that you like the show, why you like the show, why you think they should listen to the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>